Okay, let's go to Revelation chapter 5. Last week, of course, we were in Revelation 4. Remember, Revelation 4 and Revelation 5 are really the same uh, scene in heaven. They both reveal a perspective of heaven. Last week, the theme of Revelation 4 was all about the throne. It was all about the throne, in front of the throne, before the throne, on the throne, around the throne. Uh, and it was about God the Father, the one who sits on the throne, the worship of God because he is holy and he's the eternal creator. Chapter 5, the focus moves from the one on the throne to the one holding the scroll. So this chapter is about the scroll in the hand of the one on the throne. And the central character in chapter 5 is the lion and the lamb, the one who is worthy and able to implement the contents of this scroll or this book. So the chapter really answers the question, who is able, who is worthy to reverse the curse and regain paradise that was lost in Eden? You know, even the people that don't know Jesus understand that we live in a broken planet. You don't have to look very far to see that. So there have been authors for centuries writing utopias. What would utopia look like if there was no brokenness and no sin, etc.? Guess what? Utopia is coming. When Jesus comes back and sets up his messianic kingdom on planet Earth, that's what we're going to have. So here's the key idea of chapter 5. Everyone worships something. Everyone worships something, but only God is worthy of worship. Only God is worthy of worship. Chapter 5, verse 1. And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. Now John uses this word, I saw, I looked over and over again. If you look at uh, chapter 5, verse 1, verse 2, verse 6, verse 11, four times he says, I saw. He's an eyewitness. He's writing what he recorded. John is the scribe here and the Lord is his, his tour guide, if you will. And so he says, I saw at the right hand. Now the right hand in scripture is the place of power and it's the place of privilege. If you're seated at the right hand of God the Father, you're a place of power and privilege. As a matter of fact, it's a place where the Son of God is right now praying for you. It says he intercedes for his children at the right hand of the Father. So we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, and while he's waiting for his kingdom, he is praying for you and I today. So God the Father's on his throne, the Son is on his right hand, and in the Father's right hand there is something called a scroll. You have probably, it's called a book. Uh, this, this term, book or scroll, is used in five times in five verses. So when you look at chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, in five different cases, it'll say, the book, the scroll. Clearly, this book or scroll is very, very, very important. So here's the principle. God's book, this book we're talking about here, contains his eternal <laughs> plan to repossess and restore his property and his people. God's book contains his eternal plan to repossess and restore his property and his people. We're going to talk about that in great detail in the next several months. Now, the word book, biblion, is where we get the word Bible from. Prior to books, you know, when we actually had individual pages that you would affix to a spine and you can open the book and do the pages, they had scrolls. You would have a piece of parchment or animal skin or papyrus, papyrus, and they would be 20 feet long or 25 feet long, and they would simply roll the thing up. Like two, uh, what do you call them, rolling pins? Is that what you do when you do dough? Or two sticks, they would hold those at the end. And you would write on that, and you'd unroll it as far as you wanted to read, and then you'd unroll a little bit more, and unroll a little bit more. And when you were done, you'd roll it back up, so you'd have two sticks with uh, long papyrus in between, and you'd put it away at that point in time. So this scroll was sealed. 
It was not readable. So let me give you some context. Roman wills, Roman lease agreements, marriage contracts, business contracts, title deeds, any formal document, they were all signed, sealed, and delivered for safekeeping, just like Stevie Wonder, for those of you that are back in the day, right? Remember? Those of you that don't remember Stevie Wonder, boy, you should have been around when he was good. I'm yours, babe, right? So a signed, sealed, and delivered document was a formal commitment, like a wedding contract. When Stevie sings, I'm signed, sealed, delivered, I'm yours, he says, I'm committed. I'm signed, sealed, delivered. It's the formality of the arrangement that we're talking about. All ancient documents, formal agreements were written and signed and sealed by various witnesses. Now here's the difference. When you do a trust or a will or an estate plan today, right? You're going to leave your stuff to whoever comes after you. Where do you sign typically? At the end. In this particular case and throughout ancient times, you signed that you were witnessing the authenticity of a document throughout the document. So you would write a section of your will and you would get a piece of wax or a piece of clay and you would put it there and you'd put your imprint in it. That's the seal, your seal, and you'd have a witness signed by that seal. And then you'd write another chunk of your will and you would have that imprinted and you would have another witness, a second witness, signed next to that one. So this scroll we're talking about here has seven different seals, seven sections apparently, and seven different witnesses who sign it. So the witnesses didn't sign at the bottom of the document, they signed throughout the document. And when you would put a seal on a document, it means you could only open up to that seal. If you wanted to go beyond the seal, you had to break it. If you wanted to see what was next in the mystery, you had to break the seal to open the next chunk of the book or the scroll to be able to read what came after that seal, right? So it wasn't something you could simply open the book and read the whole thing. You had to break a seal. And by the way, you didn't break seals unless you had authority to break seals because that was a formal written document. It was also, it says in chapter 5, verse 1, it was written on the inside of the scroll and on the back. Now there are a couple of points of view here. If you have a scroll that's written front and back, what do you conclude? You would say the author probably had a lot to say, right? I mean, they're writing on both sides of the scroll. And you say, well, why don't they just get another scroll? Well, it wasn't as simple as printing like today. You can print lots of paper on an inkjet or what laser, it's very, very quick. Everything was handwritten back then. So if you wrote on back two sides of a scroll, you were filling up every available space. There was nothing left to add. Probably more accurate picture of that is administrative. You wrote the complete details of the scroll on the inside of the scroll. You rolled it up, and on the outside you wrote an executive summary. So you could literally hold the scroll and read the executive summary on the back of the scroll. You wouldn't have to break seals to open it. You could simply look and say, oh, this is John Doe's will or title deed or marriage contract. So you wouldn't have to break the seals to find out what it said. So this book, very, very important book, has all the details on the inside, but it's sealed on the outside, and no one but the right person with the right qualifications can open it. Now, the, it would, if it's sealed with seven seals, clearly it's a pretty important document at that point in time, and you never broke seals except in the presence of witnesses. If you were going to open up formal title deed, a marriage contract, a business arrangement, a property purchase, 
You only broke those seals in the presence of witnesses who could authenticate, yes, we were here and we saw that, so it wasn't tampered with at that point. Now, obvious question is, Brad, there's an awful lot about the scroll in the first five verses. What does the scroll contain? Many scholars believe the scroll represents the title deed to the universe, including planet Earth. See, God owns the universe because he created it, right? But at Adam's fall, a lot of things happened, but one of the most profound things is that the entire universe fell under the control of Satan. God still owned it because he's the creator, but Satan obtained control because of Adam and Eve's sin. So God is now going to reclaim his planet. God is now going to reclaim ownership and control of his planet Earth, and the price tag has been paid through Jesus, but we still have a usurper on God's property controlling this property, right? I didn't say God didn't own it. God owns it. But we do have Adam doing an illegal transaction when he signed over management agreements of the planet because he was the governor of the planet. So Satan has to be evicted from this planet. When we get to chapter 6 through chapter 18, we've got 12 chapters of God's repossession plan for planet Earth. And it's not an easy repo plan. We're going to talk about that. Satan has to be evicted because the world doesn't belong to him, it belongs to God. This scroll, you're going to find out, doesn't contain a description of God's property. This scroll contains God's battle plan for how he's going to repossess what's his. How he's going to take back what's his. It's a catalog of judgments that he's going to visit on planet Earth and on Satan and on the enemy to take back his universe from that liar and that thief. Genesis 3, God had promised that the day was coming when he would end Satan's rule and reinstall Jesus as ruler on planet Earth. God the Father's authorized his son, the lion and the lamb, which we're going to find in a few minutes, to repossess what is, what is rightfully his. So Jesus is going to open this scroll. It means he's going to take possession of that which he's already created and purchased. Now this scroll... You can see it in Ezekiel 2. If you're looking for a cross-reference, Ezekiel 2. Ezekiel has the same vision of heaven. And he reads the scroll and it says, Ezekiel said in Ezekiel 2, On this scroll, it was written on the front and on the back, and written on it were lamentations and mourning and woe. Now we know this scroll contains really, really bad news for God's enemies. At some point, God must act and he must judge sin. He can't tolerate it forever. So when God takes back his universe, and primarily planet Earth, he's going to purge it of all sin. That is not going to be an easy process, nor will it be painless. Let me give you an illustration. Let's say you own a house that is now illegally occupied by squatters, right? You had a house and somebody moves into it while you're on vacation, and they refuse to leave and they're trashing your property with their filth. What are you going to do? You're going to evict them, and then you've got to clean it up. Well, guess what? We've had a squatter on planet Earth since the Garden of Eden, since Genesis 3. And he's left a lot of filth on the planet. When God takes back what's his, he's got to clean it up. He's got to purge it. And a good chunk of Revelation 6 through 18 is going to be how God gets that done. Now, let's go to verse 2. How does that all happen? I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and break its seals? When you, j just for grins, I would say, book a couple hours with a pen in hand and read through Revelation. This term, loud voice, shows up 20 times in Revelation. 20 times. It never, 
ever says God is speaking in a still small voice in Revelation. That time is done. Revelation, there's no still small voice. It's, everything is loud. This angel is literally shouting this question because this question has to be heard by everyone in the universe. This is the ultimate executive search. Who is worthy to open the book and break its seals? The entire universe has to be searched for someone who is both qualified and strong enough to open the scroll. Someone who's got the right and the might. You know, you've heard the movie, The Right Stuff. We're looking for the person who's got the right stuff to do this. What we're looking for here, what this angel's asking for is two things. Someone who's the executor of God's will. Someone who can be the executor of God's will and we're looking for the rightful heir. Now, they don't have to be the same thing. In this case, they are the same. The executor, the agent who is going to enact God's will, obviously has to be strong enough to get that done against Satan and sin, and we need the rightful heir who's going to inherit God's entire estate. <laughs> Verse 3, if you understood this, you would really be depressed. And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the seal or look into it. This was not only executive search, it was a pretty extensive search. The implication is no nook and cranny of the, over, of the universe was overlooked. The other thing that's interesting is after the angel shouted the question, who's worthy to open the book, there was only silence. No one responded. No angel responded, no human responded, no saint responded. No creature responded because no creature is worthy or able to open this book and execute God's will. God's title deed can only be opened by the appointed executor and heir. Who's the appointed executor and heir? Jesus, Jesus Christ. Now throughout history there have been countless kings and dictators and tyrants and despots who have attempted to rule the world, right? And Escher in their version of utopia, none of them have worthy, none of them have able, none of them can cope with sin and Satan and death. John, in verse 4, begins to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. So he bakes, breaks into profound weeping, and he does because he understands the implication. If there's no one that's able to execute God's will and repossess the planet, what's the outcome? You are stuck with sin and death and dying and mortality and wrinkles and breakage and pollution and murder. You're stuck forever on a broken planet. There is no hope. When you stand by the graveside of a loved one, they really are gone forever. You will really never see them again and there is no hope. Death really is the victor. Now, there are people who live that way. I've been to funerals where the weeping is absolutely out of control. And it's because they do have no hope. They really believe that their loved one is gone and they'll never, ever see him again. Now, you know Jesus understand that we don't ever say goodbye. We say until we meet again because we're going to meet again. We obviously have that promise. But this is hopelessness. John looks at this. If there's no one here to execute God's will and take back the planet, Satan continues to be a squatter on God's property forever. I'd say the track record's pretty bad. The last 6,000 years have been pretty painful on this place, right? One of the elders, verse 5, one of the elders, we talked about them last week. There's 24 of them. They represent redeemed humanity. He tells John, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah... The root of David has overcome so as to open the book and it's seven sealed. John, one of the elders tells John, dry up. Have your parents ever told you that? 
dry up, stop crying, or I'll give you something to cry about. Right? Yeah. John, you have not seen the rest of the story. When he says, behold, right, that's an old English way of saying, but look, pay attention here, right? <clears throat> Hope is not lost. There is one who is worthy and able from the tribe of Judah. He is a lion, the king. And C.S. Lewis named him Aslan from the Chronicles of Narnia. Now, this king has been prophesied. This is not a new king. Genesis 29, Jacob prophesied that Judah was a lion's whelp and that the scepter would not depart from Judah until Shiloh comes. A scepter means a king. Wherever there is a scepter, there is a king. And Judah was the tribe from which Israel's kings were going to come. That was prophetic. Jesus was the prophesied Messiah, the coming king, who was to come from the tribe of Judah, and he did. Interestingly enough, lions are typically known as the king of beasts. What they're known for is their fierce attack and their devastating ability to take prey. A lion typically attacks with only one thought in mind. They're not going to rock a by baby in a treetop and cuddle you. They want to kill you and eat you. That's what lions do, right? Now, here's a principle. God's mercy always precedes his judgment. The lamb has already come. The lion is coming soon. God's mercy always precedes his judgment. You're going to see the lion and the lamb throughout Revelation. The lamb has already come. That was his first coming. First time Jesus came to planet earth, he came as the lamb, not the lion. He came to lay down his life. He came to give his life like a sacrificial lamb, not take life like a lion takes life. The second coming of Jesus is all about the lion. You must get that. Matter of fact, he's not qualified to be the lion until he's the lamb first. He's already come as the lamb. The second time he comes as the lion is the king. Matter of fact, Jesus is the original lion king who will destroy death itself and kill the cancer of Satan and sin. So just because the lamb came first doesn't mean the lion won't show up. We got a whole planet here who thinks the lion's not coming. Oh, the lion's coming. He's coming. And you, when you read the rest of this book, you will understand this lion is serious business. He's not only strong enough like a lion to enforce God's property rights, so he's the executor, he's also the rightful heir. He's the inheritor of God's entire estate. He's qualified because he's the root of David. Jesus is called the root of David here in verse 5. Both Matthew and Luke tell us that Jesus is both the son of David and the root of David. Which means, humanly speaking, he came in the lineage of David. He's a descendant of David. But how can he be a descendant of David and be a progenitor of David at the same time? Because he's God and he's eternal. And the Pharisees tripped all over that because Jesus asked them, how can he be both the progenitor of David and the heir of David? Well, if he's God, he's before and after, right? He's eternal. God is he, Jesus Christ is eternal. He predated David. So Jesus is qualified to execute God's estate plan because he's the rightful heir of God's estate. He's the coming king, and we prophesied that. He's not only the rightful heir, he has already defeated Satan. Notice what it says. It says, overcome. He is worthy to open the book and to look in it. The tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome. The word there is Nike. What does Nike mean? Victor. Victor, to be the victor. Nikael. We have a company, a footwear company named Nike, to be the victor. See, Satan can only hold us captive because we have sinned. And sin means what? You're separated from God. 
Now, Jesus paid for our sin and defeated death by his death and resurrection, so he's qualified to execute God's judgments on earth. The book of Revelation is all about the prophetic coming record of Jesus repossessing his universe. Let me give you an illustration. God owns the property. We humans live on the property. We're his tenants, right? We're his renters. You don't own the planet. You rent space on the planet from God. Yes? He's the owner. He's the creator. We were supposed to be the resident managers of God's property as well in Genesis 1 and 2. As well as his renters, we were supposed to be the property managers. Adam illegally signed over the management rights of God's property to that liar and thief named Satan when he sinned. He signed over the management rights. Ever since the Garden of Eden, Satan has been an evil property manager and an illegal squatter on God's property. Satan steals what is God's and mistreats God's people who are living on God's property. Jesus has paid all your back rent and all the fees that we owe to that evil property manager named Satan. Since Jesus has paid all the bills, he can now evict the squatters and terminate the property manager's contract. Jesus is coming again and he's going to repossess his own property. He's going to bring legal charges against that cruel property manager named Satan. Now Satan and Satan's followers will not leave God's property willingly, so God's going to have to throw them out by force and violence. This book, the first five, first five verses talk about the book, the scrolls, right? The seven sealed scrolls contains God's battle plan to repossess his planet. And it involves war and blood and death and catastrophe. By the way, evil never goes away easily. You have to fight it to the death. If you're in this life, you are going to be battling evil in your own heart until Jesus comes back or takes you home. There is no paradise on this planet. We have squatters on this planet who don't belong here. We have property managers on this planet that don't belong here. This book is a record of Jesus coming back and taking back what is his, and it's going to be done with force and violence against those who are opposed to it. Now, we have a worthy one and an able one. We know him as the Lamb. His name is Jesus. He's going to open the book and the seven seals. And when he opens the book in, chap in verse chapter 6, he's going to begin to enforce God's judgment against Satan. So when we jump in next week into chapter 6 through 18, we're going to see God's battle plan for retaking the planet. And you're going to look at this and you're going to say, boy, there's some pretty extreme stuff in here. Yeah, we got a real extreme problem here. It's called cancer that's killing the patient. And if you don't do surgery, you know what's going to happen? You're going to die. I was interested to see on the news, I was just thrilled, There were uh, we had this uh, attempted wannabe terrorist on a Paris train. We had three American servicemen and one British businessman. And I read, saw an interview of the British businessman. He said, look, you sit in the chair, you're going to die in the chair. You might as well die with your boots on taking action to try and prevent things. I'm going, yeah, you tell it, man. I mean, that's the whole point. Doing nothing means we continue to subject, Satan continues to squat on God's property. Well, God in his timing is going to take back his planet. It's going to happen. And this is the record of it. Verse 6. John saw between the thrones, 
between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders, a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out to all the earth. Where's the lamb located? The lamb is not on the periphery, is it? The lamb is not distanced from the throne. The lamb is in the middle, in the center, next to the throne, center stage. By the word, lamb shows up 27 times in the book of Revelation. Clearly, it's a central theme. Now, this word for lamb, the Greek here, means a small, young pet lamb. This is not a mature sheep. This is a small, young pet lamb. Remember that the Passover feast that they were required to sacrifice a lamb? Before they sacrificed the lamb, they had to bring the lamb in the house and live with the family in the home for four days. So your kids would sleep with this lamb and name this lamb and cuddle this lamb and pet this lamb. And then four days later, you had to take it out and violently kill it. And your kids had to watch this. The point is, when you kill a pet and you do it, you understand how precious life is and you understand the agonizing pain that it costs you. Do you think it cost our Father some pain to sacrifice His Lamb, the Son of God? He's giving us a picture here of the price tag of the sacrifice Jesus paid for us. The Lamb was slain, violently slain. And yet, if you look at the next phrase, it says He sees the Lamb standing. So Jesus has been seated at the right hand of God, interceding for us, and now, very significant, Jesus stands up. Don't underestimate that. He stands up because he's getting ready to take action. He's getting ready to repossess his planet, and he's standing up and moving, but it looks like he shouldn't be able to stand because it says he's got wounds as if he was slain. This lamb still bears the physical stars, the death wounds of one who was murdered. Yet he's very much alive. It's been said that the only man-made things in heaven will be the scars of the Savior. The only man-made things that will make it to heaven are the scars of the Savior. Scripture tells us that he will bear those scars for all eternity. So when you see him in glory, you will only see him with the scars. And you will be reminded forever how much he loves you. How much he loves you. This lamb has seven horns and seven eyes. Now, seven, of course, is the number of perfection and completion throughout Scripture. Horns in the Bible are always weapons of power because in the animal kingdom, horns are how you defended yourself and how you inflicted power on others if you were a horned animal. So it always refers to power and strength, especially governmental power and strength. Eyes in Scripture generally represent knowledge and intellect. So this lamb with seven eyes and seven horns, it means this lamb is all-powerful and all-knowing, right? Interesting, we don't think of a lamb like that, do we? we this pretty unusual lamb. We think of a lamb as being pretty helpless, small pet lamb, pretty naive, like a lamb to the slaughter. Well, that's, Jesus did that. He went like a lamb to the slaughter, Isaiah 53. But now this lamb is all-powerful and all-knowing. Also says the seven eyes represent the Holy Spirit's always present working on planet Earth today. Now this lamb stands up and he does something very, very interesting. As a matter of fact, verse 7 is probably the most significant act of the lamb since his resurrection. And he came and he took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. So... Jesus the Son, the Lion and the Lamb, came up to the throne, 
took the scroll out of God's right hand. Didn't ask permission. Didn't need to ask permission. What he's basically saying is when I take the scroll, I am beginning God's battle plan to restore human history and his world and we're going to start a new phase of life. The church age is over. This world as we know it is going to end forever. Jesus Christ as king is going to rule this earth. And when he does, the evil empire will be destroyed. You know, it's interesting. Sometimes contemporary culture gets some of it right. Star Wars had some of it right. They had a lot of it wrong. We had some of it right. Good against evil, right? You had an evil empire. You had an evil emperor, etc. Now it's all done in the power of the flesh. But good will triumph over evil, and it will not be an easy battle. This planet is almost going to be destroyed by the time God gets done with it, literally. And he's going to do the destroying, which he's got the right to do because he did the creating, right? Okay? But the good news is chapter 20 to 22 are, are coming. So you got to stick around, right? We're going to see the new heavens and the new earth, right? Now, I want you to notice Everybody else in the throne in chapter 4 and chapter 5 falls down in front of the throne. The elders, the angels, the cherubim, they ascribe praise and worship. The lamb doesn't fall down to worship. The lamb doesn't ask permission to take the scroll. The lamb just walks up to the throne and takes the scroll. Why would that be? Clearly, John views the lamb and the one sitting on the throne as equal, right? Apparently, so does the rest of heaven. Because when the Lamb comes up and takes the scroll in verse 8, what does everybody else do? It says, when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before who? Lamb. The Lamb. So they're worshiping the Lamb in the same way they worshiped him who sat on the throne. Surprise, surprise. Jesus is God. Same as God the Father. Three in one, the Trinity. When he had taken the book, all of heaven breaks into worship. The four creatures, the cherubim, the 24 elders worship the Lamb exactly as they worship the Father. Interesting. The only worship instruments mentioned in the book of Revelation are lyres and trumpets. Ly not lyre, pants on fire. Lyre as in harp, right? Like a, It's a stringed instrument, right? Okay. Yeah, there'll be no pants on fires in heaven either, because liars don't get in, right? Unless they're forgiven. And so it says that, yeah, I know, you're all forgiven, so it's, it's all good. You know? <laughs> it says that, um, verse 8, when he had taken the book, we have the worship of heaven, but interestingly enough, the 24 elders apparently have incense that they burn and bowls full of incense and, incense and harp. So this is how they're worshiping. Now, Remember in the, um, in the Old Testament when God commanded Moses to build a tabernacle, one of the primary roles of that tabernacle, and it was the daily job description of the priest, was to burn incense. Remember Zacharias was burning incense in the temple when he saw an angel who told him that he and Elizabeth were going to have a child, John the Baptist. Now the incense was burned outside the Holy of Holies. It was burned in the holy place, but it was designed to have a fragrant aroma that rose up to God, the incense. In the Old Testament, incense always represented the prayers of God's people. Because when people pray to God, that is an aroma, a sweet aroma to Him. That's the word picture here. God delights when His children come to Him and bring their prayer requests to Him. And so when it says they, 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 they come with incense, it represents the prayers of the saints. What is intriguing to me is that it says bowls full of incense. 
like cereal bowl. It literally means a golden cereal bowl with a wide mouth at this point in time. So if someone's got bowls full of incense and incense represent the prayers of the saints, what do you think the bowl of incense represents? whole bunch, exactly, a whole bunch of prayers. As a matter of fact, it probably represents the accumulated prayers of God's people throughout millennia. It's amazing to me that God remembers all our prayers. Because some of the stuff I've asked him for, I wished he'd forget. But he treasures those prayers. When you bring prayers to him, even if they're misguided, he's a father he wants to hear from his children. Bring them to him. Don't ever don't talk to him because you think it's foolish. It doesn't matter. When your two-year-old grandchild comes up and goes, da-da-da-da-da-da-da, you don't ever say, well, that was the dumbest thing I ever heard. You don't do that, right? You just love the fact that your two-year-old grandchild or child comes up and, and brings their request to you, right? You're thrilled that they trust you. God's the same way. He says, bring it to me. Come to me, all you are heavy laden. I'll give you rest. So these bowls of incense represent the accumulated prayers. By the way, prayer is a preeminent act of worship because prayer always elevates the one who's receiving the prayers. When you pray, you are worshiping. You are acknowledging, God, you are greater than I am, and I do not have the answer, and I'm trusting you because you are greater and you do have. That's an act of worship. It says, not only did they bring the lyres and the incense bowls, it says they sang a new song. And the new song, you're going to hear this theme three more times in this chapter. Worthy art thou to take the book and to break its seals. For thou wast slain and didst purchase for God with thy blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and thou didst make them to be a kingdom and priest or a God they will reign upon the earth. Here's the principle. Jesus is worthy of our worship because he redeemed us, which means to buy back. He redeemed us from Satan and reconciled us to God. Reconciled means to bring together. So Jesus redeemed us. He bought us back from Satan and reconciled us. He brought us together with God. It says they sang a new song. These are songs of redemption. By the way, redemption always brings a song. When you've been set free, you want to celebrate. I read a number of commentaries this week that argue with a pretty de good degree of logic that the only singing that ever occurs in Revelation is by the saints, never by the angels. Because angels, it always says, they say, holy, holy, holy. They say, worthy art thou. Anytime it says sing, it's always talking about redeemed people. Angels are not redeemed. They can't be redeemed because they haven't sinned. So they don't understand the joy of being in bondage, of being set free like the redeemed do. When we fail to sing, we usually have forgotten what God has done for us. I know you know the old tune. It's an old, old song. Count your blessings. Name them one by one. It's a good strategy. Good strategy. Count them. Write them up. You know, we get down in the mouth. Oh, God, this circumstances are so bad. You know something? Worship solves most of your attitude problems. As a matter of fact, if you're worshiping, it solves all of them. So we're going to talk a lot about that. So he, they, they, they're, they're praising God and they're saying, Worthy art thou to take the book and break its seals. So, Jesus, you alone are worthy to overcome Satan's kingdom. You alone are worthy to install God's kingdom on earth. Now, worthy means possessing value, value or deserving of praise. 
possessing value or deserving praise and deserving praise. Now, Jesus has the inherent right to judge evil and rule the world because he's God. Because of who he is, his identity. He's God himself. He's also earned the right to take back the planet because he sacrificed his own life. And what does it say? He purchased people for God, right? So he's worthy to reposition, repossess the earth because of what he's done. I'll tell you what he's done. He's purchased you. He bought you, the word purchased here, right, redeemed next to that, purchased or redeemed. The Greek is orgazo, A-G-O-R-A-Z-O, orgazo. Sorry about that. It means to buy out of the marketplace. Here's what Jesus did for you. He bought you back. He went into the slave market of sin where you were and where I was for the purpose of setting you free. And the price tag to set you free was his own blood. Because the innocent had to die, the perfect lamb had to die to satisfy the righteousness, the judgment, the holiness of God. And he set you free so you could have a relationship with him, a love relationship with him. As a matter of fact, verse 9, many translations say, you were slain and you did purchase us, us, by your blood. Now, since God purchased you by his blood, the implications of that are rather staggering. Let's take a look at the extent of his purchase. Go to the last part of verse 9, and it gives you four different kinds of, of uh, groupings of human beings that Jesus purchased. It says he purchased people out of every tribe, out of every tongue, out of every people, and every nation. Tribe has to do with clan. It has to do with lineage. It has the descent, the same descent. Tongue is glossia. It means the language. So he purchased people from the same descent. He purchased people from the same language. The word people there is ethnos, ethnic. He purchased people from the same race. And the word nations is, is the same culture. So out of this total mass of humanity, billions and billions of people, he purchased people out of every group you can think of. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every people group. He purchased them out of, which means he's got people in heaven from everywhere. There's no favorite group. There's no favorite language. There's no favorite tribe. There's no favorite people. There's no favorite nation. He's got people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language. Right? So the notion is, is his grace is for who? The whole world. Whosoever will may come. Everyone can accept God's offer of freedom. Not everyone does, but it's available. And he says, by the way, when I set you free, here's what happens to you in verse 10. Number one, you become part of my kingdom. Here's the mind blower. It says in verse 10, you're going to be kingdom and priests. And what's the last phrase of verse 10 say? You will reign with him on the earth. Does not that kind of boggle your mind? He's going to give you power and authority to rule and reign in the Messianic kingdom. Now, two or three things are going to have to happen. Number one, your sin nature is going to have to be gone, or you will abuse that power big time, right? Most of us have as much power right now as God can trust us with. I'm not sure we're doing real well with what we have, but... He says, you're going to reign, but fortunately, 1 Corinthians 15 says, we're going to be changed. We're going to have a new nature. We will be like him, 1 John. 
So we will reign with him on the planet, and as priests we will have complete access. So redemption involves relationship. Never forget that. So they're singing a new song. Verse uh, 11, we have more praise. John looked again. He says, I looked, I looked, I looked, I looked. He saw this again. And I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. I want you to notice the progression of this worship. It gets larger, it gets louder, and it gets longer. This is not a Southern Gospel Quartet singing here, folks. This is not a solo. John uses the term myrion, M-U-R-I-O-N, which is Greek for myriads. Myriad was 10,000. 10,000. It was the largest word the Greek language had for a number. Myriad was 10,000. They couldn't think any bigger than that. And he, John says there's myriads of myriads. That's 10,000 times 10,000, which is in excess of 100 million. And what he's saying, it's really innumerable. It's really beyond counting. There are so many angels worshiping God. And by the way, if you don't get the picture, he says there's thousands and thousands on top of that as well. So this is a huge worship scene in heaven. And are they worshiping in a soft voice or a loud voice? <clears throat> Apparently, God likes loud music. <laughs> Apparently so. Yes, there's no mention of any wimpy worship in heaven. I'm sorry. It's all loud and it's all big. I mean, I'm just saying this is what it shows us at this point in time. And they are all saying the same thing. So there's unity in the worship. And what are they saying? Worthy is the lamb that was slain. Jesus is worthy of worship because he possesses infinite value. And John, interestingly enough, gives us a sevenfold description of the lamb. Sevenfold. He says, worthy is the lamb to his slain to receive what? Power, riches, wisdom, might, honor, glory, blessing. Interesting, seven is the number of completion and perfection. Jesus deserves our praise because he alone is all-powerful. Jesus is worthy of all praise because he possesses all things, all riches, right? He owns it all. Jesus deserves recognition because he is infinite wisdom embodied. We have the mind of Christ. Jesus is worthy of honor because he is mighty to save. Jesus is worthy to receive honor because of his holy character. Jesus deserves all praise because of his divine majesty and radiant glory. And lastly, Jesus is worthy to receive blessing because of his complete perfection. So this is all about the character of the Lamb, the character of the Son of God. And he's worthy of praise because of who he is, intrinsically. He's also worthy of praise for what he's done. He's redeemed for himself people from every tribe, tongue, nation. Now he's talking about this is who God is in, in, in person, in character. Verse 13, it gets better. It says, And every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth or on the sea and all things in them. Tell me what that means. Kind of means everybody, everywhere. Yeah, no exceptions. And what are they saying? To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and glory and honor and dominion forever and ever. It's interesting. <clears throat> Every created thing which is in heaven, that would be birds like gulls, on the earth, I guess that could be geckos, under the earth, maybe that could be gophers, on the sea, that could be goldfish. It's, he says everywhere. It doesn't matter where you look, every created thing is praising the Lamb. Every created thing. 
right? What did Jesus say at the triumphal entry? If you don't praise me, the rocks are going to cry out. I can receive praise from inanimate things, right? Humans are the only creature that God made that actually can choose to praise or not choose to praise. Everything else on the planet praises him, right? They don't have a choice. They're not sentient life. We have the will to choose to praise or not to praise. Here's the principle. Heaven is filled with joyful worshipers. So practice praising him now. Some people praise God pretty readily and pretty easily and pretty frequently. Some people have to practice praising him consciously. I think the more you practice praise, the more accurate your perspective on life is. Last week we spent a fair amount of time talking about when the circumstances of life seem to be absolutely disastrous, what do you do? Focus on the throne. Focus on the throne. Focus on the throne because God is on the throne. He's not asleep on the throne. He's sovereign on the throne and he's ruling from the throne. This chapter is all about the Lamb, the worship of the Lamb for what he's done. And it's a lot more personal because it says he's redeemed you. He bought you back out of the slave market of sin. He wants a relationship with you and you're going to reign with him. You're going to be kingdom, part of his kingdom and part of his priest, which means you have access to the throne. Access to the throne. By the way, you have access to the throne now, right? Through prayer. How often do you go there? I think sometimes we pray when there's really no other choice, right? Is it that bad, is it that bad yet? There, John is yeah. telling the story of the woman who, I guess they were in a really bad situation, and, and they said, let's pray, and she says, oh, has it come to that? <laughs> you know, you know. I would recommend that you get well acquainted with Jesus before you see him face to face. You don't want to meet him as a stranger. You want to know him. He has so much he wants to bless your life with. See, all of creation blesses their creator. Do you know why everybody's so excited? You look at this, the last three or four verses here. All of creation's going nuts. They're really going nuts. I'll tell you why they're crazy. Why they're so excited. Romans 8, 19 to 22 says that today the entire creation groans in pain. They're in bondage to sin and death, and they want to be emancipated. When Jesus, in the first five verses, takes the book out of the hand of the Father, the, he's taking the battle plan out of the hand of the Father, creation goes nuts because they know the day of emancipation's coming. Because Jesus is on the move. Remember what? Remember uh, Chronicles of Narnia? Aslan is on the move. How many of you saw The Lion of the Witch in the Wardrobe? Fascinating scene because it's always winter and never Christmas, right? And then when Aslan's on the move, what happens? You start to see the thaw and you start to see the green and you start to see life come out of the snow and you start to see the sunshine. That's what's happening here. Creation knows that when Christ took the battle plan book from the Father on the throne, they knew that Satan's reign of terror was coming to an end. And the white witch was going to be dethroned to follow that Chronicles of Narnia at that point in time. So be assured, saints, Aslan's on the move. 
When you look at this world and we look at the circumstances and you look at the, the people who would pretend to rule this place, be they politicians or despots or want to be elected officials of all stripes and characters and brands, none of them are competent to run the planet. There is only one, the rightful heir, the executor of the father's estates, Jesus Christ. This is his place, and as you're going to find out coming up very soon, he is going to take back the planet, and he's going to establish his kingdom on planet Earth. He'll rule from Jerusalem in the millennium in, in Revelation 20, and there will be peace on this place. And he will enforce it. It's been said that um, ultimately this life is an autocracy, and his name is Otto. Autocracy, you get that? A theocracy, and his name is Theo, right? We live in a monarchy. We don't live in a democracy. A monarchy has a king. We have a king. We're subjects to a king, right? The king is repossessing what is his. Now, I want you to notice the crescendo of worship. Get your pens out. Yes. I know. I don't know the answer to that. Okay. But I'm going to do some work on that because I thought the exact same thing. Currently on the planet, there's rebellion going on and it says everybody worships. Everybody worships. Well, we know Philippians says every knee shall bow. Which means Satan will be on his knees before Jesus Christ declaring that Jesus Christ is Lord of glory of God the Father. Every knee shall bow. So we look at this in sequence, in time, and God lives outside of time, so I can't tell you. But I believe these people are either worshiping in faith because they see what's coming. Now, Hasn't happened yet. But Revelation also is written in, in thoughts. It's not sequential. So That's correct. That's absolutely true. Jeff's got a good point. Yeah, yeah. We have not seen the breaking of the seals at this point in time. But get your pens out. Go to Revelation chapter 4. Go back one chapter, and I want you to go to verse 8. I want to walk you through this sequence real quick before Tom comes up. Chapter 4, verse 8. I want you to notice the crescendo of worship. In chapter 4, verse 8, who's doing the worshiping? Four living creatures. Underline four living creatures. They're praising God the Father for His eternal holiness. They say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. Four living creatures. Go down to verse 11. Who's praising God in verse 11? 24 elders. So verse 1 is the four living creatures. Verse 2 of this song of praise is the 24 elders. And they praise God the Father for being the creator of all things. The four living creatures in verse 8 praise Him for His eternal holiness. In verse 11, the 24 elders praise Praise Him for he, His ability to create, His willingness to do that. Go to chapter 5. We're going to look at the third verse. So the first verse is 4, verse 8. The second verse is 4, verse 11. The third verse is 5, chapter 5, verse 8 to 10. Who's worshiping in chapter 5, verse 8 to 10? The four living creatures and the 24 elders. The choir is getting a little bigger here. And they're praising Jesus the Lamb for redeeming man. Chapter 5, verses 8 to 10 is the third verse of this crescendo of worship. Four living creatures, 24 elders. Go down to verse 11 and 12. We have the fourth verse 
of this crescendo in worship. Verse 11 and 12, who's doing the worshiping in that section? Many angels, right? And who else? The living creatures and the elders. Whoa. And they praise the Lamb for being worthy. So 11 and 12, the size of the choir is increasing, folks. The, the sound is increasing. The praise is becoming more and more extensive. And finally, we have the finale in verse 13. Who's worshiping in chapter 5, verse 13? Every created thing. What is the purpose of the creation? To worship the creator, right? That's why we were created. God created the creation for his own pleasure. And for his pleasure, we were created. And you know something? When we worship, God gets the glory and you get the blessing. I have never, ever found that worship did nothing but make me better. Because when you worship, you come closer and closer to the throne. If you want joy, understand that God inhabits the praises of his people. The less you think about yourself and the more you think about him, the more he is exalted and the more your soul is fulfilled. Where we fall short is we take our mind off the throne, we take our eyes off Jesus, we start looking at our circumstances, and we lose perspective. All right, let me give you a quick summary. Here's the key idea. Everyone worships something, but only God is worthy of worship. Secondly, God's book contains his battle plan to repossess and restore his property and his people, and he's going to do both. Number three, God's mercy always precedes his judgment. The lamb has already come, and the lion is coming soon. Number four, Jesus is worthy of our worship because he redeemed us. He bought us back from Satan and reconciled us to God. And the last one, heaven is filled with joyful worshipers. Tom, you might want to make your way up. So practice praising the worthy lamb now. Okay. Now that you know, do. You better get your big boy and big girl panties on because we're jumping into chapter 6 next week and you will need your depends. This is really going to get shaken. All right. He gives you the, the, the judgments of chapter 6 and following after the throne room so you maintain perspective. Never forget that everything that happens in 6 to 18 comes from the throne. Amen? Okay. Love you.